This episode is brought to you by Birthsong Botanicals, whose postpartum herb bath for mom and baby is the perfect way to soothe sore perineal muscles, slow bleeding, minimize swelling, and help dry your newborn's umbilical cord, all while creating a relaxing and restoring bonding experience between mom and baby. Head on over to birthsongbotanicals.com and check out their postpartum herb bath. And Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics customers get a special 10% discount at checkout when they use the promo code Common Sense. That's two words, lowercase. Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics the podcast where we talk about all of that and a whole lot more. I am the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, and I sure hope you go out and buy a copy because that's where all the good stuff is. Let's see, what's going on out there in the world, listeners? How is everybody? How are you? Are y'all happy that January is behind us and we all survived? I've been seeing jokes and memes congratulating us for surviving January 2019, the longest year ever. And baby, I feel it. Now, February historically is my challenging month because it's been dark and rainy for too darn long here in Portland, and I am a sun child by nature. However, this February, I'm feeling pretty optimistic because we've had some sun, and I'm telling you, that's all it takes for me. What's going on in the news? Well, speaking of Portland... We are in the middle of a relatively big measles outbreak in my neck of the woods. There have been at least 44 cases as of, you know, right now, um, when I'm recording this, of mostly unvaccinated kids under the age of 10. Now, ground zero is Vancouver, Washington, which is just across the river and a few miles away from Portland, Oregon, which happens to have some of the highest rates of unvaccinated kids due to vaccination exemption policies um, in the country. You know, that's people that have a medical or religious reason for not having their children vaccinated or some other kind of reason. Now, prior to the year 2000, we really didn't see that many cases of measles because vaccines had largely eradicated the disease. You know, there'd be a case every so often, which, you know, came in, you know, from something like another country but most U.S. kids didn't get it. And now a lot of folks are still afraid that vaccines are related to autism. And well, that's been studied, studied, and studied some more and found to be um, not a link, people are still scared. I think that um, a lot of Americans and people from other countries too are just afraid of, you know, having medical interventions done. Now, my guess is that until we have an actual explanation for why so many kids are born on the autism spectrum these days, and until there's really a whole lot more trust developed between families and you know, some healthcare providers, I think we're going to continue seeing outbreaks like these. But here's the thing. Um, measles isn't just a harmless little disease. It can actually kill little kids. So let's talk about what measles is for a minute. It's a virus. It's sometimes also called rubiola. And um, it can be pretty serious. I mean, for most people, it's just you feel lousy, sick, and itchy, and rashy. Um, But for 
small children and other really vulnerable populations, it can be fatal. It can be really serious when the complications ramp up. Um, Death rates have been falling all over the world because more children receive the measles vaccine now than ever before, but the disease still kills more than 100,000 people every year, and most of them are little kids under age five. Now, um, the U.S. averaged about, I think, about 60 cases a year of measles between 2000 and 2010, but the average number of cases jumped to 205 a year um, more recently. And most of these cases originate outside the U.S., um, and they occur in people who are unvaccinated or, you know, who didn't know whether or not they'd been vaccinated. So what is it? How do you know if you have it? Well, that's part of the problem. Um, Measles signs and symptoms don't show up until about 10 days to two weeks after you've been exposed to the virus. Um, You know, so you might be traveling or working or hanging around, you know, people that have the virus, or you may have the virus and be hanging around and working and traveling, and you might be with unvaccinated or vulnerable people. And this could go on for two weeks before you even know you're sick. So the signs and symptoms that you want to watch out for, they typically are you get a fever, you get a dry cough, you get a runny nose, your throat is sore, um, your eyes might get irritated and red, you get these um, little white spots uh, on the inside of your mouth, on the lining of the cheek, and you get the rash, which is like large, flat, blotchy areas. And um, it it is kind of a three-stage, two or three-stage kind of thing. You know, you get infected and then you incubate. You just cook the virus for about two weeks. You may or may not have any signs or symptoms of the measles at all. And then there is the stage where you just feel sick. You've got the fever. You've got the aches and pains. You've got the runny nose and cough. You might think you have a cold or flu, stuff like that. And that'll go on for two or three days. But then the rash shows up and they're little small red spots. They might be slightly raised or they might be flat. Um, They're in tight little clusters, splotchy red appearance. Get them on the face first generally. And then over the next few days, it spreads around onto the arms and the, you know, chest and, and abdomen, thighs, legs, feet. And then the fever goes up. It can go high, especially in little kids. Oh my God, they can spike such a high fever. Like, 104, 105. And, um, you know, generally as the rash goes away and the fever goes down, people start to feel better. But a person who has measles can spread the virus to others for about eight days, um, starting with, you know, like four or five days before the rash even shows up. So it's contagious. Now, um, like I said before, most people are just going to feel lousy. Um, but then you have to also consider, you know, what are the some of the more serious complications? And for people who have a, you know, depressed immune system or babies who haven't, who aren't old enough to have the vaccination yet or unvaccinated kids, um, you know, there might be more serious complications like pneumonia, encephalitis, which is a, a swelling in the brain bronchitis, the airway, ear infections. And if you're pregnant, it can also cause preterm labor. And, you know, if you have one of those people that gets the severe complications, it can even cause maternal death. So it's not a benign condition. 
we tend to think of it as a little kid's disease. So, you know, how bad could it be? But let me tell you, for most, um, it's going to give you a miserable few weeks, but for some, it can be really serious. And then what do you do during that miserable few weeks? If you're a working mama like I am, you know, that kid's not going to daycare. Nobody is going to take care of your kid if they've got measles. So, you know, you got to think about these things when you're weighing the pros and cons of whether to get your kid vaccinated. Frankly, I am going with science and experience on this one. My kids are fully vaccinated and I'm grateful none of them ever contracted this disease. But what's interesting here in the Pacific Northwest is that this is spurring a lot of conversations about parents, their right to choose their child's health care versus what's best for the general public. And I think it's pretty interesting. There's a lot here to talk about. So if you're pregnant or a new parent and you're weighing this decision yourself, I, I advise you to be real, real careful where you get your information. Um, it's easy to just read reports and studies that support, support your own opinion. Um, go find other stories and learn more, especially, you know, if you are in the anti-vaccination camp, go look at the other side of the story. It's pretty compelling. Um, then make your decision about whether or not to vaccinate your child best on the best info available and in consideration with the fact that your child is going to live in the world where people travel and go to school and touch stuff and breathe on each other, get each other real sick sometimes. So that's what's going on here. Let's take a quick break for our sponsor. Bursong Botanicals Postpartum Herb Bath is perfect for soothing sore perineal muscles, slowing bleeding, minimizing swelling, and helping dry your newborn's umbilical cord, all while creating a relaxing and restoring bonding experience between mom and baby. As a labor nurse, I've recommended a good soak in the tub to thousands of women as a great way to soothe their oh-so-tender nether regions. Now, Bursong Botanicals takes that soak in the tub to the next level with ingredients like sea salt in an organic plantain leaf, organic yarrow, shepherd's purse, organic herba ursi, calendula flowers. Postpartum herb bath is for external use only, but it's safe for you and your baby. So head on over to birthsongbotanicals.com and check out their postpartum herb bath. And Common Sense Pregnancy customers get a special 10% discount at checkout when they use the promo code Common Sense. Okay, we're back and we're ready to get this week's guest on the line. February 5th marks a pretty big anniversary, the 26th anniversary of the passage of the Family and Medical Leave Act, which guarantees time off for women and men who've had a baby or adopted a child, um, for families who need to take care of aging parents, sick kids, and spouses. It's a humane law that impacts a lot, but not everyone, and it goes partway towards protecting families from being fired when they have to take care of serious business at home but it doesn't go far enough for most of us. And that's what we're going to talk about with this week's guest. Jessica Mason is Senior Policy Analyst and Engagement Manager at the National Partnership for Women and Families. Let's get Jessica on the line. Hey, Jessica, it's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Jessica, are you in Washington, D.C.? I am. I am. Is it is I was it going cold? To say, um, it's it's a little bit cold, but I feel like I shouldn't complain about it because I actually am from the Midwest, um, yeah. and so the rest of my family out there right now is totally frigid. I mean, hopefully they're inside safe, but um, 
it's fine here. Yeah. Nothing to complain yeah. about. I know. Me neither. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and we're having a cold, sunny day. But my version of cold is like 40. I can't whine. <laughs> no whining. Yeah. And yeah. sun in Portland, that's um, that's something to celebrate. Oh, you bet it is. Yeah. It's definitely – everybody's running around in their little pasty – their little shorts looking all pasty and pale and it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Jessica, the most important question of the day is this. Who are you and what do you do? I am a senior policy analyst and engagement manager with the National Partnership for Women and Families. Um, the National Partnership is a nonpartisan nonprofit based in D.C. Um, and although partnership is in our title, um, those partners are all external. We don't have members across the country. Um, and what I do here is work on our uh, workplace uh, programs team where we are fighting for fair and family-friendly workplaces. So I do a lot of work on paid family and medical leave policy um, and also some work on increasing access to paid sick days, um, improving our the fairness of our workplaces, both in terms of um, ending sexual harassment um, and uh, fighting for equal pay and fair pay, um, and also being supportive on issues that our other partners work on, like childcare um, and um, improving access to fair work schedules um, and other workplace safety and health issues and um, family issues. It's all kind of connected, isn't it? I mean, it really is. Um, yeah. And I should mention that at the, at the partnership, um, so I work um, on, as I mentioned, workplace issues, but at the partnership, um, I have colleagues who also work on um, quality, affordable health care, um, um, patient services and um, access to patient data and reproductive health care. Um, and we really see all these issues as, as closely interrelated, um, you know, for women to succeed and for families to su succeed. Um, we need to have time to care for our families. We need to have the health care um, that they need and we need to have money to pay for it. Yeah. And we finally need to have a culture that recognizes the value that um, women bring to both families and the workforce. And the policies and cultural practices that we have always engaged in that mess us up. That is so, so true. Um, and when I think about um, particularly paid leave, which is what I spend a lot of my time on, I really see it as part of not just a policy change and a legal change, but also part of a culture change in this country around what kinds of work we value. Um, and for so long, that um, domestic work and caregiving work that is not exclusively, but primarily done by women, um, has really been devalued. Um, and so we need to end it. Um, we can do better. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I do think that over the last generation or so, as um, men have been more involved in the day-to-day -day you know, aspects of family life and parenting, that I think that we are seeing the value of women's work elevate sort of now that dudes are doing it, you know? Definitely, definitely. It's a change on both sides. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've sort of had a lot of focus on getting women into the formal workforce. Um, and now we've kind of come back a generation or two later and said like, well, we need to change what's happening at home. Um, and we're seeing more and more, particularly with um, younger generations of men, um, that they want to be there too. They want to be involved with their families. Um, they want to be caretakers as well as good workers. Um, yeah. And so I think we're, we've really made a lot of progress, although there's a lot left to do. There really is. Yeah. So when you're not being senior policy analyst and engagement manager, what else do you do? Um, I 
particularly living in DC, I practice a lot of yoga. Um, and um, I try to get outside, um, get that fresh air even when it's cold. Um, and I try to get back to visit my family um, as much as I can, um, both in the Midwest. Um, and my partner actually has some family out in Portland. Um, and so we try to get out there once or twice a year, too. Oh, we'll have to meet up when you're out here sometime. That'll Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would like, you know, we've had um, the National Park, people from the National Partnership on the podcast many times, but some of our listeners are going to be brand new. So I'd like to just do a little quick, uh, just tell our listeners a little bit about what the National Partnership for Women and Families is and does. Sure. Um, so we are a uh, nonpartisan nonprofit. Um, we do a lot of work on policy and advocacy from here in D.C. And the National Partnership has been around for more than 45 years now. Um, so it is quite a, has a storied history. Um, our um, founder and um, um, one of our most most respected members um, helped uh, draft and pass the Family and Medical Leave Act, um, which I think we're going to get into a little bit today. Yeah. Um, and also was involved in, in earlier okay. fights for the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Um, and we as an organization have really tried to advance, you know, at every opportunity, um, women's abilities to um, um, have equitable work life um, and to take care of their families. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the Family Medical Leave Act. The anniversary is coming up on the 5th. 26 years. So maybe we should start off with, you know, talking about what it is. What is the FMLA? Yeah, thank you so much for raising it. It's um, very timely. So the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, is the United States' only national law that provides people um, a guarantee of time away from work um, in order to care for their families. Um, so it was signed into law in 1993. Um, so we're yeah, coming up on 26 years, um, which is quite a long time. Um, and has um, really Jessica, provided us. Yes. I'm sorry, but um, you dropped completely off my recording. So um, you were just starting. Know. Yeah, that's okay. We're going to just edit this. And you were just starting to tell me uh, what the FMLA is. <laughs> Right. Um, Sorry about that. That's okay. It uh, definitely happens. I'm, I'm on Wi-Fi too, so hopefully it doesn't cut out too much. But uh, okay, yeah. If it does, we'll figure out something else. But so far, let's just let's just go for it. Great. Yeah. So I was just asking you to give us a little bit of background information on FMLA. So the Family and Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, was signed into law in 1993. So we are coming up on 26 years. Um, the FMLA is our country's only national law that provides people a right to take time away from work to care for their families. Um, and it's been used, let me see, the last time we took count a couple of years ago, more than 200 million times, um, and that has certainly increased since then, um, to enable people to take job-protected time away from work to bond with a new child, to address their own serious health condition, um, such as um, cancer or chronic illness, um, or to care for a spouse or child um, or parent um, who is seriously ill, um, perhaps an aging parent who um, needs help with a recovering from a hip replacement surgery, um, or taking time away to um, help that parent um, enter as as my parents unfortunately have needed to do recently, um, help a parent enter um, a long-term care facility. 
Yeah. And so it's a deeply important law um, because prior to that, um, in, in many cases, people could be fired um, for taking that time, you know, to sort of imagine um, facing that, that choice between taking time to be with your new child um, or keeping your job. And right. so the FMLA was signed um, in order to um, make sure people could do both. <laughs> Um, and so it's been really helpful for the people who've been able to use it um, to preserve their jobs, um, to preserve their access to health insurance, um, which is obviously very important. Um, but unfortunately, it was sort of a, a first step. Um, and we've been trying to take that second step um, ever since for 26 years. So in the, so first, the first place, the, the first mm-hmm. step is, is that, yeah, you can have the time off and you can't get fired necessarily. But the right. But the other part of that is, but you're not going to get paid. Right. And I, to be totally honest, I don't know how many people in my life, much less myself, could afford to take weeks or months away from the job um, without a paycheck, without falling into a pretty difficult situation. Right. Right. Most of us can't. Most of us, you know, I don't know the numbers, but I know that the people that i work with, talk with, live with, you know, they're a paycheck or two away from being in a disaster. You know, and that's the reality for most families. I mean, I think we've just seen that with the um, really tremendous harm that the government shutdown just did where missing a paycheck or two is the difference between keeping a home for a lot of people or being able to buy medications that they need um, to to keep their health together. Right. Um, So it's, it's just, not quite, you know, it's an important first step, but not quite enough um, for most families. So that's phase two. That's what we're coming to now, right? Right. Um, so I'll mention two things. Um, so I guess phase two maybe has an A and a B part. Um, the part A is, unfortunately, the FMLA itself was um, limited. Um, so it only applies if you have, if you work for a business with 50 or more employees, so relatively on the larger side. Um, and it only applies um, to people with a certain work history. So you have to have worked for a full year. You have to have worked um, 1,250 hours in that year. So that in itself has left out a lot of people who work for small businesses um, or work part-time or um, families who move around a lot. For example, I know military families often are moving every year or two. Um, and so there's sort of this gap already with the FMLA um, that, that we'd like to go back and fix so that it um, is a more... Um, closer to that universal coverage that we were hoping it would be in the first place. Um, And then the second part, obviously, is pay, um, because we all need to pay our bills. Right, right. I was really fortunate with my first child that I had her in California. And I, um, I had a regular old job at that point, and I was paying into the system. And so I was able to tap into uh, disability insurance for a postpartum period which was great. And I totally took it for granted. And then I had other, my other children in Oregon where, yeah, not so much. That didn't happen at all. You had to use up your paid time off at work. You had to use up your vacation time. You had to hold your breath and squeeze your pennies and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about, um, you know, employers that have 50 or more uh, employees. But, you know, I'm thinking about women who are working in small shops and restaurants and, you know, smaller businesses. There's no protection there. 
None at all. And so that really just leaves people up to sort of the mercy of the boss lottery. Like if you work at a large enough employer, then you get lucky. Um, or yeah. if you happen to have a good job with a good boss, then maybe things work out okay. Um, but not everybody is in that situation. Right. There's still an awful lot of people in the world who think that, well, if you don't have the resources and means to be able to take a fully funded postpartum period or to be able to afford your child care or to be able to afford your child's health insurance, if if you don't have the, the resources and means, then you shouldn't be having children. And I just think that that is so indicative of the privilege that so many people live with that we just have to address. That's not how it is for most people. Yeah. And I you think know. there's a, there's a moral issue there too. Yeah. That, you know, everyone should be able to um, have the family they want um, yeah. and have the ability to do that when they want to. Right. Right. But you know, the U S is the only high wealth country that doesn't help their parents out. <laughs> that doesn't guarantee paid leave. And I think that I actually don't know anybody personally who doesn't think that that is something that people deserve. Yeah. And that is certainly what we have seen in the surveys that we've done, um, that um, creating a national paid leave program is one of the few issues that is tremendously popular across all political affiliations. Um, it is really remarkable. It was, um, I think the most recent survey we ran last year was found something like three quarters of Republicans and 80% of independents and like more than 90% of Democrats would support creating a national paid leave program. Um, you just don't see that kind of agreement on much of anything these days. Right, right. And I think that that too is kind of indicative of the world we live in today, where people are really waking up to what women's lives are like, what what we're what the challenges are that we're facing, how we've been just killing it for generations here, <laughs> despite these challenges, and more importantly, what we could do with the proper support, you know? That's right. That's right. Um, and that's certainly what we've seen in comparison to other countries that have paid leave and other supportive programs for, for new parents is um, more women are in their workforces. Um, we see improvements in wage equality. Um, mm -hmm. You know, families are honestly a little bit less stressed out. Um, yeah. things, things could be a little bit easier. We know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I get to talk to a lot of women um, who are, you know, they've recently had their babies and they expect that they're going to have that rosy glow feeling of sheer happiness and bonding all the time. Um, which is, you know, what you kind of hope that your postpartum period is going to be like. But so many women say that it is so overshadowed by their dread that they have to go back to work too soon because they don't have the money to be able to stay home for months and months. And so it's, you know, they're not having that rosy glow. They're having this anxiety over how they're going to function, how they're going to do it. And, you know, I think that if we had a really well-designed des paid leave program that didn't have such, you know, treacherous financial and emotional impacts on women and children, then I think that we would thrive economically. I think that it would be amazing, actually. 
you know? Yeah, yeah, that is certainly what we expect and what the research points to. Um, and I want to spend a little moment talking about that anxiety and that that dread and what's happening in those first few months after birth. Um, yeah. So we know, for example, that access to at least 12 weeks of paid leave actually reduces postpartum depression, um, which is not surprising if you stop and think about it, but not enough people do. Yeah. Um, and we also know that just that having that time to spend and dedicate to building bonds with a new child, um, you know, after birth or after adoption is so, so critical to the emotional development of, of, a, of a young child, to their brain development, um, to their health. Um, and these are things that, you know, we can put prices on them because a lot of um, lawmakers like to talk dollars and cents. Um, but they're also priceless, right? Um, you know, right. we should be nurturing our children as much as we can. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, so many different ways that we could do better on gender equity for women at home and in the workplace. And and it's encouraging to me that we're in this, once again, in another election cycle where um, it's getting talked about. People are talking about it. Yeah, it's great to have that um, on the front burner for once. Um, people are talking about equity. People are talking about um, you know, ending um, workplace harassment, um, ending the pay gap. Um, if I um, got my dates correct, I believe um, the Democrats just introduced um, the Paycheck Fairness Act in Congress. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunities, I think, this, um, this next year or two to really move on some of these issues. Um, and in terms of gender equity, one of the, you know, for all its limitations, one of the great things about the FMLA is that it is set up in a gender equitable fashion. Um, not only because it provides equal time to parents, regardless of gender, um, but there's also something um, nifty about the way that it combines all those caregiving purposes, which means that employers don't see it as just a women's policy. And so it doesn't, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of a fear that there might be a backlash. You know, if we put a maternity leave program in place, maybe employers will be, um, reacting negatively to women applying for jobs or something like that. Um, and so the structure that we've set up um, already in our laws is sort of this broader um, gender equitable thing that because just about everybody's going to use it for something at some point, um, mm -hmm. then there's no real um, negative downside um, to people just because of their gender. Um, and that is actually a lesson that we've learned from some of the European countries that, you know, again, have made tremendous advances, but there are a couple ways we could do better than they have. Then, you know, once this law, you know, once, once you've included this, you know, gender equitable language in it, though, it is then the responsibility, I'd say, of men to take advantage of it. Because you can call it, you can use the language that is most equitable, but until it's actually utilized on both by both genders, it's still going to be kind of looked at as the, you know, childcare bill or the postpartum bill, you know? Yeah, that's, that is so true. Um, and yeah. What did I say? There's a part A and a part B. I think part C is the culture change. Yes. Um, make Let's sure talk that, about that culture. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. The juicy stuff. Yeah. And so I should note that I, I come at this, uh, my training is actually in anthropology. Um, mm -hmm. And so my background is a lot of cross-cultural 
study um, and research, particularly on gender and reproductive politics. That's always been something I've been really interested in. Um, and so one of the interesting findings from anthropology is, number one, there is no universal way to do anything, um, including having children, raising children, caring for children. Um, and number two, um, gender roles really vary a lot from place to place and culture to culture. Um, and so the upshot of that is culture can change um, and we can change it. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we recognize that our culture um, maybe places a little bit overemphasis on total commitment to work all the time, and that is detrimental to our families. Um, mm-hmm. And so we can decide ourselves, you know what, we're going to change that value. We're going to do things a little bit differently. Um, and we're going to open up space to recognize that um, all people are capable, perfectly capable of being really good, dedicated caregivers, um, not just m- women, but also men, also um, gender queer people, um, really anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, great, great. Yeah. So, what do you think about the way that people are talking about it in their candidacies? So, we've been really excited to see that um, each of the last several election cycles, more and more candidates have been talking about um, really about all kinds of gender equity issues, um, but including about paid leave. Um, so, we did, we've um, the past three election cycles, um, we've done analyses of what candidates are running on in terms of our, the issues that we follow most closely. Um, and really fascinatingly, just a couple of years ago in 2014, um, only about 4% of the candidates we were tracking even mentioned paid leave in their platforms. Um, and that's jumped up to 29% in the 2018 election. Um, so really in just a couple of years, we went from almost nobody talking about it to a third of the candidates in um, competitive, those high profile races um, yeah. talking about paid leave. So it's on the agenda. Yeah. And I'm already hearing people talk about it. And the fact that um, we're seeing already so many women coming forward, uh, it's it's going to be the topic of conversation because women are going to talk about it. You know, women are going to talk about it. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. The women um, that we're seeing, you know, coming into the 116th Congress are talking about it because they needed to nail down child care. You know, senators and congressmen in days gone by, it never crossed their mind. Yeah, there's something really basic about just like physically having people in Congress who have young children yes, um, are a little bit more aware of the needs of parents. Yes. And it's a more holistic view of society that they represent because, you know, if if we have, okay, right now, I, I, I maybe the number is 24% or maybe it's 26%. You would know. What's the percentage of women representing us on the Hill? Is it like 24%? I should know that. And I, I, I think it's 24. I think it's 24. I mean, we've got more women in Congress than ever before. And yet 75% of our country's policies and politics are represented by men. Women make up 51% of the population. So we're making progress, but we're still being represented primarily by guys who never, ever, ever had to arrange childcare. They never had to take a maternity leave. It was already handled by their wives or partners. Yeah. So that's the culture change I'm so excited for. Yeah. And you can see that it's already having an impact. Um, you know, when I think about who in Congress has been talking about paid leave, it really for a very long time was mostly or exclusively women lawmakers. 
Um, And the last couple of years, we've started to see more, um, including high profile male politicians also talking about it. Um, and also more conservative or right-leaning politicians, which is a real change um, from just a couple of years ago. Um, and so we've seen, you know, as I mentioned, we're a nonpartisan organization, and so we're really excited um, to have more interest from, um, from both sides of the aisle, um, although the details matter a lot in terms of what kinds of things people are proposing. Yeah, it really, really does matter a lot, but it's really encouraging that um, men from both sides of the aisle are talking about it because, you know, so much like, guys, you got to take your family leave to normalize it for everyone. You know, guys on the Hill, you have to talk about family leave to normalize it for everyone. It can't be a women's issue. It has to be everyone's issue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they need to understand that, you know, regular people out there want to hear about it. Um, This is an issue that people care about because, you know, we all feel it personally. Yeah. 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 We all feel it. It's, it's, it impacts everyone's lives. Yeah. Well, what else do you want people to know about your work and FMLA? Let's see. I would say. And, And what can listeners do? What should they do? So, um, I would say two things come to mind first, cause I'm still thinking about this culture change and this men taking, taking leave issue. And I can't let that pass without saying that um, we do have currently active paid leave programs in four states. You mentioned the California program, um, which I'm so excited you know about. Um, mm-hmm. I will admit that before I started working here at the partnership about two and a half years ago, I didn't know that any states had paid leave programs, um, yeah. but they do. So um, Rhode Island, New Jersey, New York, and California have um, paid family medical leave programs that are working well. So we have a lot of good data from them. Um, And we that's one of the reasons why we know they're so good for families um, and actually pretty good for businesses, too. Um, So those are out there. If you live in those states, um, definitely look them up so that you can use them. And then um, we have programs coming online soon in Washington State, um, Massachusetts, and the District of Columbia. So if you live in those states, keep an eye out. Um, And if you don't live in those states, um, one of the things you can do is um, call up your uh, state representatives and say, hey, you need to take some action on this. Um, And call up your members of Congress and say, it's time for a national paid family medical leave program. and I'm not sure if you endorse specific legislation on this program, but I will. Yes, mention- I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't want to break any rules. Um, I, the National Partnership supports um, a national bill called the Family Act. That's the Family and Medical Insurance Leave Yay Act. DA is silent. Got um, it. And so that's, that would create a national fund. Um, that would cover everybody who works and allow everyone access to up to 12 weeks of leave paid a year um, to bond with a new child, to care for um, a loved one with a serious health condition, or to take leave for their own serious health conditions, um, and also some um, military caregiving issues related to deployment or injuries. Um, And so the way that works is it's a little bit like an unemployment insurance or a social security system where everybody makes little payments into a fund. And then when it comes time to take the leave, you get paid out of that fund so that the whole cost isn't totally on your employer. Um, And that also makes it affordable to cover self-employed people um, and people at all income levels. Wonderful. I love it. Love it. Yeah. So the Family Act, remember it. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. 
Well, we've been talking a bit and we should probably start wrapping things up, but I still have a few little questions for you. Sure. Um, this is probably a duh question, but I always like hearing how people answer it. What role does feminism play in your life and work? I would say it's at the core of both, really. Um, so, you know, I've always had, I'm sure many people say this, but I've always had strong women in my family. Um, and I've been blessed to have a really supportive dad also. Um, and so I learned from an early age, um, or at least was taught from an early age, that um, I could do anything and my brothers could also do anything. Um, and they really modeled um, healthy relationships across genders um, and gave me the impression that um, anything was possible and also that we should always try to help each other, um, help people who need it. And so when I got to oh, like high school or college and sort of started learning more about the outside world and history and politics, um, I kind of came into it with that value that that gender differences are, you know, interesting, but they shouldn't determine people's fates. Um, and that we have a responsibility to help those of us who are less fortunate. Um, and to me, those really aligned with feminism, which is about um, ending hierarchies and oppressions based on gender. Um, and in later iterations, also race and disability status and any number of other things. Um, and so for me, feminism is really about um, paying attention to the way that gender shapes life, um, but also fighting really hard to make sure that that's never a limiting factor for anybody. Ooh, that was a good answer. Nice. Okay, next one. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. It is really hard not to hear that and think of the Friends theme song. No one ever told me life was <laughs> going to be this way. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody um, ever told me either. I didn't yeah. know it was going to be like this. Yeah. Um, it's better It's better than they said. <laughs> you know, it is. So I would say one thing is um, nobody ever told me that it. Um, a lot of things get have gotten better as I've gotten older. Oh, yeah. I hope that's not so too true. personal, but um, I feel like there's, there's a lot of stuff um, that I was very – self-conscious about um, when I was younger. And I think this is part of part of the gender thing, like my appearance and whether people liked me and like whether I was, you know, with the cool kids or whatever. Um, and um, as I've, the older I've gotten, the, the more I've realized that, that I'm allowed to care about the things that are important and also kind of let some of that other stuff go. Yeah. Um, and so that's been, that's been really great. Yeah, it keeps it keeps on going that way too. You just more and more you just say, you know what? I'm gonna be me. That's what I'm gonna do. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, my last question for you then is this. Where are you in the world of motherhood or parenthood? That is an interesting question. Um it's um it's a good day to ask that. Um actually my um uh, my the news I got first thing this morning was uh, my cousin just had a baby. Um, and so that was the kind of good first thing in the morning, like she went through labor and it came out well, um, which we're very, very happy to hear. So congratulations. Yay. Um, Who's your cousin? Say hi to her. Hi, Elena. Hi, Elena. Congratulations (laughs) on your baby. I hope you are um, resting right now and not listening to a podcast, but I'll send it to you later. (laughs) 
<laughs> We're so happy for you. Um, and then for myself, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. And I think it's, it's also part of um, the reason I do the work that I do is um, I was um, kind of marginally employed and then in grad school for a long time. And, um, and for many years had that kind of precarious employment situation where I didn't know for month to month whether I would have a job or health insurance or, or what. Um, and living like that it was really hard even to think about the question of, do I want to have a kid? When would that happen? Um, and so it's really only the last couple of years when I've had a more stable situation that I've even been able to think about it. Um, and so I would say I'm sort of at a at an exploratory phase um, mm -hmm. right now, but but very conscious of how much of a difference it makes to just have a steady job and know that you have those benefits and that if I did yeah. decide to, um, you know, my employee very happily here would be very supportive. Um, and it just makes such a huge difference. It's everything. It's everything. It's the difference between struggle and thriving. It really is. Exactly. That's so well put. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jessica, it's been really good to talk to you. I'm just excited about the work that you're doing. And I appreciate your coming on and talking to us about it this week, the 26th anniversary of the Family and Medical Leave Act. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah. And we're going to have, you know, you guys from the National Partnership on the show again and again. You guys always have such interesting things to talk about. Great. Yeah. And hopefully we'll have some exciting um, news in future years to share. Sounds good. All right. We'll talk again down the road. Definitely. Okay. Bye. That's it for this week's this week, folks. We want to say thanks to our sponsor, Birthsong Botanicals, for helping us keep the lights on here at Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics. Check out their postpartum herb bath over at birthsongbotanicals.com. And don't forget the promo code Common Sense for your 10% discount. You can learn more about our guest over at nationalpartnership.org. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Go find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, at all your usual book haunts, including Amazon.com, Powell's.com, wherever. Then tweet me, at Jean Faulkner. Find Common Sense Pregnancy over on Instagram and Facebook. And please send us your questions, ideas, and thoughts. We'd love to have your good reviews, too, over on Apple Media, Stitcher, Megaphone, or wherever you get your podcasts. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Dad Experience, a pod network podcast, is a place where new dads, seasoned dads, and even grandfathers can come together and share our victories and some of those parent fails, too. In each episode, your hosts, Mike and Adam, open up about their own dad life, discuss important topics, and bring on dads from all walks of life to share their perspective on fatherhood. Because let's face it, we don't always have the answers or solutions. You can find the Dad Experience on the Apple Podcast app, the Pod Network app, and the Google Play Store. We also want to hear from you, so join the conversation and share an experience with us on Twitter at DadEXP Podcast or on the Dad Experience Facebook page and help us navigate through all things we call fatherhood.